I will be reading Hebrews 11:13 from the Christian Standard Bible. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Buddy, I just asked the pastor, how long can I go for? He said, you go as long as you want. There's no guarantee you guys will still be here when I get done, but just keep going. That's fine. I want to start off this morning with a confession and a profession. Can I confess something to you this morning? My confession is I'm a broken human being. But my profession is, is I am just one beggar leading other beggars to find the bread. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, as we bow our heads and we open your word, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be the one that speaks to our hearts, and it wouldn't be me, Lord, that uh, you would speak through me. We would lift up Jesus. I know all of us here come from different walks and areas of life, and this last week has brought different challenges to each of us. And going into the next week, we are going to face even new challenges. So Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that the message that is presented would give us hope, that it would give us courage, that it would show us that we can stand on the rock. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I heard a story of a counselor that was leading out in a support group. And this counselor, she asked her clients, she said, if you had two weeks to live, what would you do? Two weeks to live, what would you do? One lady raised her hand and she said, if I had two weeks to live, I would go and I would get all my kids and I would make sure my kids were back in church. That's a good answer. Uh, A guy raised his hand and he said, if I had two weeks to live, here's what I would do. I would go and I would volunteer down at the, at the soup kitchen, you know. I would, I would go to one of those homeless shelters, and for the next two weeks, I would give them myself to help those less fortunate. Ah, that's a good answer, yeah. Well, then another guy raised his hand, and he said, if I had two weeks to live, here's what I would do. If I had two weeks to live, I would move in and live with my mother-in-law, because that would be the longest two weeks of my life. You know, our Bible verse this morning, I don't know if we can get that screen on. There we go. Our our Bible verse this morning and our message is, I have a plan. Do you trust me? Our message is, can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with my future? The Bible verse that was read a moment ago is in Hebrews chapter 11. And certainly we know Hebrews 11 as the chapter, the hall of faith. And it mentions both men and women who do who did great things for God, and they had, a, they, they had much more than just two weeks to do incredible things. They did awesome things. Yeah, this, in my humble opinion, is one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible because it says, These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. I mean, these men, these women, they did incredible. They lived for God. They were willing to sacrifice everything for him, yet none of them have received the promise. So my question to you this morning is, does God keep his promises? Can we trust God with our future? 
I read there in Hebrews 11, it mentions uh, Abel, and it mentions Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Rahab, and the list goes on and on. But what's interesting is, as I read this, just a little side note, is it actually mentions Isaac and Jacob. But when it mentions Isaac and Jacob there in Hebrews 11, what they are known for, or the reason Isaac and Jacob are put into Hebrews 11, is they're simply known for blessing their children. That's what it says. They bless their children. They didn't build an ark like Noah. They didn't part the Red Sea like Moses. All they did, Hebrews 11 says, is they blessed their children. In other words, in God's economy... Both Isaac and Jacob, in in blessing their children, they passed on the knowledge of God, which tells us in God's economy, when we pass on the knowledge of God, the blessings to the next generation in God's mind, that is just as powerful and incredible as building an ark or parting the Red Sea. Amen? Passing on that blessing to our children. How many of you have ever been in a situation in your life, by show of hands, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you knew that God was the only way out? Some of you have never been in that situation. How many of you have a hard time telling the truth in church Sabbath morning? Any hands there? How many of you don't want to raise your hand? Hey, I got some of you. Hey, you fell for it, didn't you? You think about health issues and, and marriage issues and financial issues and, and relationship issues. And, and as I was thinking about, can I trust God with my future, I started doing a study on the word, but God. It's incredible how many times this phrase actually shows up in the Bible. One of God's heroes or one of our Bible heroes, they're, they're up against an obstacle. There's no way out. And then the Bible says, but God. I'm not going to share all of them with you this morning, but let me share some of the ones that really stood out in my mind. In Genesis, you know, Noah is surrounded by wickedness, but Genesis 1.8 says, but God remembered Noah. The Bible here in Genesis chapter 31 describing, you know, Jacob, he was being taken advantage of by his father-in-law, but it says, but God has seen my hardship and the toil of, uh, of my hands, and last night he rebuked you, but God. Here in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph, his very family, turns against him. And yet Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, you have intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I read about David, and we, of course, we know the story of David. Saul was trying to kill him, and the Bible says, day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And you know, even the sting of death in Psalms 49, it says, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And all of us, we hate death because death is that great thing that separates us from those that we love. And down in Santa Fe, Texas, many of those received phone calls yesterday that a loved one had tasted the sting of death. And in Psalms chapter 73, we may experience health challenges, but the Bible says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
You know, even Satan tried to get rid of Jesus, hung him on that cross. And the Bible, writes, the Bible writer says in Acts chapter 3, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And you know, even we, today, we struggle with sin, yet Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us. In this, in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies to Christ, the Bible says, but God, over and over and over, when there's an obstacle, the Bible uses this phrase, but God. So I guess my question for you this morning is, how big is your butt? Hey, people, B-U-T. I don't know where your minds are this morning, all right? In fact, do me a favor. Look to the person next to you and say, how big is your butt? No, don't do that. They might. Look, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how big your butt is, but I know how big your God is. And over and over. I was going to title it, How Big Is Your Butt, Pastor? But I thought, Pastor Mark may never invite me back here again if the sermon's called, How Big Is Your Butt? I don't know how big your butt is, but I know how big your God is. I want to share with you this morning, we're going to go through a story, and we're going to kind of jump to the story, then jump back to the Bible, then jump back to the story, then jump back to the Bible. So I want you to follow along with me. It's an incredible story. It was written out in a book. It's a story of some missionaries back in 1921, David and Surveya Flood. They were living a comfortable life there in Sweden when the Lord began to convict them to go as missionaries to the Belgian Congo. Uh, David Flood said to his wife, Savea, he said, how can we sit here in this home in Sweden when there are so many people in the world today that have never heard the name of Jesus? So they packed up all of their belongings and they took with them their two-year-old son, when they arrived at the, at the British Congo, they were met by another missionary couple, the Ericsons. So now there were five of them. There was David and Savea Flood, the couple, the Ericsons, and David and Savea Flood's son. And they left their mission station, and they went out there in the British Congo, and they went to a small village by the name of Endalora. And when they first went to that village, the village chief had warned all the people in the village, make sure you have nothing to do with these missionaries. If you talk to the missionaries, he said, the evil spirits are going to come and they're going to harass us. So right away, the, the David and Savea flood, their son and the Ericsons, they knew they were up against a challenge. So what they did is a few miles outside of this village, they built some mud huts. And the only contact they had with the villagers was once a week the village chief allowed a young boy to go from the village to these missionaries and he could sell them eggs. He was told, don't say anything to them, don't talk to them, don't listen to them, just sell the eggs and come back home. So here they are. They're in a strange place. They've given up their comfortable life. They're eating strange foods. They're learning a strange language. And nothing seems to work. And eventually, all of them get malaria, and now they're sick. And the Erickson said, we're done, we're finished, we want nothing to do with this. And they went back to the missionary station. Now, David and Savea Flood, they're alone with their two-year-old son when they find out that they're pregnant. 
Now, at this point, I don't know about you, but I would have given up. I would have said, hey, look, the Erickson's got malaria. We're outside of this village. They want nothing to do with us. Honey, you're pregnant. Hey, we tried. Let's go back home to Sweden. But they stayed. And their daughter, Ina, was born in a mud hut a couple of miles from a village in Africa that wanted nothing to do with them. And 17 days later, Savea Flood was dead due to complications. Can you trust God with your future. You know, I don't know about the challenges you may be facing in your life today, but I want you just for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of David Flood. He has a toddler, he has a newborn baby, and the body of his wife, and he's all alone in a mud hut a few miles from a village that wants absolutely nothing to do with them. There was no pastor. No pastor came to visit him. He didn't receive cards. There was no casket. Church members didn't come with flowers and, you know, casserole dishes. He was there all alone with the body of his wife. He had a shovel. He had a plot of dirt behind the hut and a little white cross that he made. He had a lot of time to think. Having not seen any fruit from his labor, David cracked and he left the mud hut. He went to the mission station He gave little baby Ina to the Ericsons, and David went back home to Sweden, a spiritually broken man. True story. Can you trust God with your future? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to go with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. We'll get back to baby Ina here in a few moments and find out what happens to her. But let's go to Matthew chapter 11, and let's take a look at a story in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 11, we're going to take a look at a story of John the Baptist. What do we know this morning about John the Baptist? I mean, he was quite the character, wouldn't you agree? He didn't wear the fancy robes like the Pharisees. I mean, John the Baptist, he was a hard core outdoorsman. You know, since the time of Malachi, like 400 years had gone by since Israel had seen a prophet. And now this guy, John the Baptist, comes on the scene, and what does he do? He refers to the religious leaders as a brood of vipers. Do you realize that the historian Josephus wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus Christ? Yet John the Baptist, he had a job. What was his job? His job was to clear the way, to prepare the way, and then to get out of the way. But in Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist in a situation. And in Matthew 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Matthew 11, I'm in the New King James, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in the cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. So Jesus is out teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. John hears about this and he's in prison, so he sends two of his disciples, verse 3, and they said to him, speaking of Jesus, are you the coming one or are are we supposed to look for another? It is here that Jesus is met by two of the disciples of John. And they come to Jesus in verse 3, and they ask, the, they ask the question, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
You see, while you're out here teaching and preaching and healing people, I don't know if you realize this, but, but our, our, our leader, John the Baptist, he's rotting away in a prison cell, and it doesn't look like he's ever going to get out. I mean, John the Baptist, the guy who lived out there underneath the, the blue skies, is now rotting away in a prison cell. I mean, it's one thing to stand on the Jordan River and give it. It's another thing to be in a dungeon and take it. But as we dig a little bit deeper into the story, we discover it's not really the two disciples asking the question. It's actually John. John sends these disciples to Jesus, and John's wondering, are you the one? This is the guy that baptized Jesus. This is the guy on the Jordan River who said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now he's in the dungeon cell, and he's beginning to doubt himself. Are you really the one? Or should we look for another? I mean, after preaching in the desert and proclaiming the first coming of the Messiah, from John the Baptist, from his perspective, it's beginning to appear that he is wrong, and he finds himself utterly confused about the very message that he had preached. I mean, the kingdom of God should have come by now. Doesn't the Bible say in Isaiah chapter 61 that he would open the prison doors and, and set the captives free? But put yourself in John's shoes. He's in a cell. He's in a prison cell. And I'll be honest, I feel bad for John. Put yourself in John's shoes. I feel bad for him. You see, John does not have the luxury like we do. He could not read about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He, he couldn't go to the book of Acts and see what happens with the early church. He couldn't go to Revelation and see how God has this message, the three angels' message that goes to the entire world. All John had was four cell walls, no way of escape, and the very guy he preached so passionately about may not be the Messiah after all. Is this making sense, yes or no? He's doubting, he's wondering, he's confused. He's asking himself, can I trust God with my future? But I want you to know what happens here. In fact, before I share with you what happens, I want to share with you a couple of quotes I found. Online, I was looking, I found one quote. It was encouraging. It said, don't interpret God in the light of your tragedy, but interpret your tragedy in the light of God. In other words, don't tell God how big your problems are, but rather tell your problems how big your God is. Amen? Yeah. Somebody once said, he who knows nothing doubts nothing. You see, doubt is not the opposite of faith, but rather it is an element of faith. If you've ever doubted your normal, if you've ever doubted your normal, that simply means that you are processing the information. How does all this fit together? We don't have all the puzzle pieces, or I should say John didn't have all the puzzle pieces as he was in that dungeon cell. And whatever dungeon you may be in today, you also don't have all those puzzle pieces, meaning we can't see the big picture. But notice what Jesus tells John. Let's go down to verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear the Dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Notice what Jesus says. He says to the disciples, go tell John about the things that you see. That's what I want you to tell John. 
Tell them what you see. Now, notice what he does not say. Jesus did not say, go tell John that everything's going to be okay. Go tell John that he's going to be getting out of prison, and he's going to be joining me, and together we're going to overthrow the Romans and establish my kingdom. That's not what Jesus said. When he says, go tell John about the things you see, what Jesus is really saying is, go tell John that he is right about their prophecies. Go tell John he's right about. It was code, code word for John. Go tell John he's right about the prophecies. And this is how it ends for John. The greatest of all the prophets, there's no miracle. There's no prison break. He doesn't get caught up in heaven like Elijah. He doesn't write books like Paul. In fact, he doesn't even preach another sermon. Jesus says, go tell John that he's right. And then the next thing we read about John, he gets what? He gets his head cut off. Jesus said he was the greatest of all the prophets. Why end it like this? Why end John's life like this? Why is this story in the Bible? Why was it included? I believe this story is in the Bible for people like David Flood, who took his family down to the Belgian Congo and thought he had lost everything. I believe this story is in the Bible for people like me and for people like you. You see, the Bible says run with patience, but patience is the very first thing we lose when the heat is on. I mean, how do you answer someone like David who is facing these major, major challenges and, he's, and he wonders, where is God? I mean, where is God? Can I trust God with my future? I mean, you know, when somebody loses their job and they know the mortgage is due or the rent is due and they're wondering, God, why is this happening to me? When, when that spouse says to their other spouse, I've met somebody, I no longer love you, I want to divorce you. When the doctor comes in and sits you down and says, you better sit down for this news. And you find out the one you love has just been diagnosed with a terminal disease. You say to yourself, why God? Can I trust God with my future? Have you ever been in a situation like this, yes or no? Or am I just talking to the walls? Back in the fall of 2011, I received a phone call. All my family's in Southern California. I grew up down there, and my sister's down in San Diego, down in Carlsbad. And I received a phone call from her husband that said, your sister's been taken to the emergency room. She's having seizures. We don't know what's going on, but you've got to get down here fast. That was a Sunday morning. Three hours later, we were on an airplane heading down to San Diego. Price wasn't an option. You know what I'm talking about? When you've got to be somewhere, price, you're not trying to find the lowest price. You're just fine trying to find the quickest flight. You been in that situation before? Flew down there to Southern California. I remember checking into the hotel down there, and I got a phone call. And the phone call was, your sister has been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Now, my sister, other than my wife, my sister is my best friend. My sister, she's a year older than me. We're very close. In fact, we're so close that she was the best man in my wedding. Imagine that. She even wore a tuxedo, Pastor Mark. You see, my wife and I, we were married in a Catholic church by a charismatic minister. 
Doesn't happen every day, does it? But your sister's got a death sentence. She's going to die. I found out that over breakfast, and I remember I went back to the room and went into the shower by myself, and I sat down, and the hot water was hitting me, and I just began to cry. Have you ever been in a situation like that before where tears are just coming down your cheeks and you're just, your whole world's been turned upside down? Why, God? And you're saying to yourself, why? She's got three kids, one of them still in diapers. What's the purpose of this? What am I supposed to learn from this? And you ask yourself the question, can I trust God with my future? Thankfully, my sister's a fighter. I should know. I've got bruises and scars to prove it. She's still with us today, but it's a fight. Just last week, she finished another round of chemotherapy. Pray for her. Her name's Melanie. She's had five surgeries, radiation, chemotherapy. She's, just in case you're wondering, she's gone pretty much completely vegan and just, I mean, doing everything she can to, to see her boys graduate high school. It's real. I know it's real, and some of you out there know it's real as well. Let's get back to the story of David. Little Ina, little Ina was handed over to the Ericsons at the mission station in the Belgian Congo. David said, I can't do this. He took his son back home, but he gave baby Ina to the Ericsons. David is broken. He's angry at God, and he goes home. Eight months later, the Ericsons die of malaria. And baby Ina is now handed over to an American couple that renames her Aggie. That's a picture of her on the screen. They took her back to South Dakota where Aggie grew up and she went to Bible college and she married her sweetheart, Dewey. Later in life, Aggie and Dewey, they moved to Seattle where Dewey became the president of a Christian college and life was good. About 20 years after they were married, Aggie received a magazine in the mail that she did not subscribe to, which was interesting because she didn't subscribe to it and it was actually written in the Swedish language, which was odd because she did not read the Swedish language. But she took the magazine home, and she began to look through it. And in the middle of the magazine, there is a black and white picture of a small grave with a white cross behind a mud house somewhere in Africa. And written on that white cross is the name Surveya Flood. Now, I don't know how Aggie knew this, but she knew. She knew that there was a connection with that picture, with that cross, and with her. She took the magazine article to the college where she knew somebody who could read and speak the Swedish language. She said, what does it say? And, and her friend said, well, it's a story of a missionary family that, that went to the Belgian Congo and the mother died and the father went back to home to Sweden. What else does it say? Asked Aggie. Well, it says that once a week, the village would send a little boy to the family to sell eggs. And once a week, survey a flood would whisper in that boy's ear and tell that little boy about Jesus before he went back to the village. And when that little boy grew up, he accepted Christ. And he built a school. And the children in that village accepted Christ. And pretty soon, the parents of that village accepted Christ. And even that chief accepted Christ. That little boy grew up and he led thousands to know and follow Jesus because of the work of that missionary family. Can you trust God with your future? You want me to finish the story, or should I just wrap it up right here? All right. 
Somehow Aggie knew. Somehow she knew that this story was about her parents. She was the baby in that story. So she flew to Sweden to see if her father was still alive. Remember, this was before Facebook and the internet. You had to actually fly somewhere, and she had to search them out. She discovered that her father had since remarried, and she had this huge extended family. And she asked her brothers and her sisters if David, is David, is my father, is he still around? And they said, yeah, he's around. She said, wonderful, I want to go and tell him all the incredible things that God did. But Aggie was told, do not bring up God. Our father absolutely hates him. Don't mention God. When Aggie arrived at David's apartment, her father, she met a frail man in a dingy apartment with empty liquor bottles on the floor. The once missionary now had diabetes. He had suffered from a stroke, and both of his eyes had cataracts. When Aggie saw her dad for the first time, her heart absolutely melted. She said, Daddy, it's me. It's Ina. David was just in shock. Ina, is it really you? Yeah, it's me, Daddy. It's really me. And he said, oh, Ina, Ina, I can't believe it. Can you ever forgive me for leaving you? Can you ever? I'm so sorry. She said, Daddy, I forgive you because it's okay, because God took care of me. And David said, do not mention God. I gave him everything for nothing. And Ina said, or Aggie said, you don't understand God. You don't get it, do you? You didn't hear the story. It happened. It really happened. And she began to share with David about that little boy and how he would sell eggs and how, how, how Savea Flood whispered Bible promises and how that entire village came to know Christ, more than 600 people. And then three weeks before David died, he gave his heart back to Jesus. Can I trust God with my future? Well, a few years later, the story gets even better, friends. A few years later, Aggie was attending a Christian conference in England. And she heard a report that the president of the National Church of Zimbabwe, formerly known as the Belgian Congo, was giving lectures there. And she thought to herself, I wonder if this guy has ever heard our story. I wonder if this guy has ever heard the story of David and Savea Flood. So after one of his lectures, when he was coming off the stage, Aggie went up to him. She said, sir, I don't mean to bother you, but i got to ask you a question. Have you ever heard of David and Savea Flood? And he kind of stepped back and said, have I ever heard of David and Savea Flood? Of course I have. When I was a little boy, I used to go to them once a week and sell them eggs. Can you trust God with your future? Does God keep his promises? Those times that we feel let down, crushed, when our whole world is slipping away from us, that's when we cling to the promises of God. That's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist, he doubted. The great prophet, he doubted, but what did he do? He did what all of us should do, is he took his doubts and he brought them to who? 
to Jesus? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? You see, just because you may doubt, that just means you're processing the information. All of us are going to have those moments, if we haven't already, where we say, God, are you really in control of my life? That means you're processing, but the nice thing about that is you're going to God. You're bringing your questions. You're bringing your doubts. We're bringing it, God, can I trust you with my future? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God. There's that but God, all things are possible. You see, the day is coming, and I think it's coming much sooner than we anticipate, when there is going to be a great getting up morning, and John the Baptist, the angel's going to come, and he's going to kind of hit John and say, John, it's time to wake up. It's time to open up your eyes. John, wake up. It is now I have come to set the captives free. I have come to free you from the prison of death. And I imagine in the courts of eternity, John the Baptist is going to meet Jesus face to face. With a big smile on his face, Jesus is going to say, John, welcome home. I've waited so long for you to get here. John, like all of us, is going to look around and say, oh, Jesus, this is much better than I could have ever imagined. And in that resurrection morning, John's going to come up. The Bible says the dead in Christ rise first. And together we are going to travel through space to a place called heaven. Can we trust the promises of God? What you see there on the screen, I want to close with this this morning. What you see there on the screen is you see a picture of the Milky Way. In the Milky Way, there are 500 billion stars. Think about that. In the Milky Way galaxy, this is our little cul-de-sac in the universe, there are 500 billion stars. And if you were to try to go across the Milky Way from one end to the other, you would have to travel at the speed of light for 100,000 years just across the Milky Way. You say, well, how fast is the speed of light? That's 186,000 miles per second. You say, well, how fast is that? If you were going the speed of light, you could circle the entire planet seven and a half times in one second. That's how fast the speed of light is. And you would take 100,000 years just to cross the Milky Way galaxy. Well, that's just one galaxy. In fact, they haven't explored all of space yet, but with the Hubble telescope, they believe there are more than 10 billion galaxies. On average, each galaxy has 100 billion stars. That means there's a hundred billion stars out there in space. Think about how big space really is. Back in 1977, NASA launched what was called Voyager 1. They sent it out into outer space. In fact, it's still traveling out there. Over 40 years now, it's been traveling out well, back in 1990, some 9 
billion miles away, they took the satellite camera and they churned it towards our planet. And they took a picture of our planet. It's become known as the pale blue dot. Do you see our planet up there? Can you see it? That's Earth. Right there. You see us? If you look really closely, you can actually see the Puget Sound. You see it there? I want you to see through God's eyes for just a moment. There's a billion trillion stars out there in space. Think about that. A billion trillion stars. A hundred thousand light years just across the Milky Way. We are this little blue dot out there suspended by nothing. And every person you've ever known, loved, or died has lived on that little blue dot. And to think that in the beginning that Jesus, the one who came down to this planet, that this creator God stood and said, let there be, and boom, things just appeared. The most powerful being that has ever existed or will exist. Let me tell you something, friends. We can trust God with our future, amen? You can trust the God who hung that blue dot out there in space. In fact, I want to close with the Bible verse, Psalms 8, verse 3 and 4. The psalmist is just considering how big God is. And he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he asked the question, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. We say, God, who am I that you would even recognize me? And yet the Bible says that he knows every tear. He knows every sparrow that falls. He even knows the number of hairs on the top of your head. And some of us are making it easy on him. But he knows you and he cares for you. The one who framed the universe is the one that you can trust with your future. Amen. I'm going to invite somebody to come up and lead us out in our closing song. Our closing song, the words are up on the screen. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. Father in heaven, as we bow our heads here this morning, Lord, we want to trust and we want to obey you. But I'll be honest, Lord, as I speak from my heart, as all of us speak from our hearts here this morning, Lord, there are times when we are faced with challenges in this life when it's hard to trust. It's hard to know everything because we can't see everything. We don't see the, the big picture. We just see just such a small portion of it, Lord. Yet you tell us in Psalms chapter 56, verse 8, that you keep track of all of our sorrows. You know our broken hearts. You know the challenges that we have faced, that we are facing, and the ones that we are going to face later on in life. You knew even before that shooting in Texas what was going to take place because you're God and you know all things and it breaks your heart, this, this free will, this choice that you've given us, Lord. It's, it's challenging at times. 
But Father, I want to thank you for it. And my prayer this morning is that each one of us, we would choose you. We would choose Jesus, and we would ask you, Lord, to take care of our future. We know anything that is put into your hands, it's blessed. And so we take our lives, our future, our families, our challenges by faith. We put them into the hands that framed the universe, that created Adam, that spoke life. We trust you, God, with our future. Let this be our prayer today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.